All right, so uh, I'm going to give you a quick like, little um, update on what we're going to be doing real briefly, then we'll just jump right in. So today we're going to be starting a brand new series for the next three weeks. Um, in fact, you'll have an opportunity to hear from uh, three of our teaching pastors, so I'm doing this one. The next two weeks, you're going to get a chance to hear from our other teaching, couple of our other teaching pastors as well. Uh, this is what we call our annual vision series, um, and there's a reason for us doing that, which I'll come back to in a second. So as soon as we're done with this series, we're going to be entering into a longer se- uh, series going through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you've never read the book of 1 Corinthians, my encouragement to you would be if you want to sync your heart up with what uh, maybe God wants to speak to you, is begin to read through the book of 1 Corinthians, download the Bible app. You version, you can kind of put it on read, audible, audio, it'll read to you. You can select, you know, different versions and whatnot. But just begin to uh, enter in that scripture, begin to shape your heart and your mind, begin to prayerfully ask God, God, what do you want to speak to me, speak through me uh, in this portion of your word? So with that being said, uh, now circling back into the series, what we'll be looking at here today, right now. So if I were to basically ask each of you, I'm not going to have you do, uh, to all stand and then all spin around 20 times. Spin around 20 times. And then, as soon as we're done with that project of everyone spinning around, um, ask you to now point to downtown slow. Um, I think my guess would be that most of us would be like, like some pointing this way, some pointing that way, some pointing that way, some pointing that way. Uh, we'd be pointing all different directions. And really, when I think about what this whole aim, uh, what we're trying to accomplish through this teaching series, is to basically get us all pointing in the same direction. Um, We are well aware of the fact that, for the most part, we live in a culture that uh, is constantly influencing, directing, guiding. There's cross-currents in our culture that's constantly um, pulling us all sorts of different directions so that by the time we get to church on Sunday morning, we're frazzled, we're messed up, our our minds are filled with anxiety, we're broken, uh, we we don't really know exactly what's happening, we're not really sure exactly what the aim or the purpose or the mission is of our lives or of this church is. And so what ends up happening is we have a bunch of people pointing in different directions. And, and our aim for this is to try to get everybody on the same directional map, pointing in the right direction. And if anything, so that there would be real clarity as to how we see God has called us to be a unique uh, presence for, of Jesus on the Central Coast amidst a lot of other great churches. Um, what, what is our unique call that we feel like God has placed upon us? If, if anything so that you could have a, a deep sense of clarity, and maybe through understanding a deep sense of clarity, then you would begin to ask bigger questions. What's my place? Where do I fit in? What's my role? What does it look like for me to be faithful to Jesus in this church community on the Central Coast? Um, and for maybe some of you, it, it, again, if anything, um, it might even be helpful to, for you to realize, like, that's not kind of what I'm all about. Maybe I want something else or something uh, is a little bit more resonant within my soul. And if anything, it allows you to really kind of begin to think, like, I want in, I want to be part of, I want to pray for this church family, this church community, the, the mission that God has called us to be able to embody within the Central Coast, um, or to just, you know, recalibrate your own, your whole life around this. So that's kind of what we're looking at and thinking about. Um, with that being said, I want to just jump right in to begin to think a little bit about who we are as a church. And uh, then uh, if you wouldn't mind opening up in your Bibles, why don't you open up to the book of, Math, uh, book of Mark, sorry, Mark chapter 3, and then open up to the book of John. So we'll be reading a couple of different um, gospel narratives. So Mark chapter 3 and then John chapter 14, we're going to be jumping into that in just a moment here. If you guys don't have Bibles, we have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles, so you can go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, meaning you don't own one, you're more than welcome to go ahead and keep this as our gift to you guys. 
Um, so what I want to do, I want to just jump in a little bit about uh, uh, describing a little bit of, of who and how we see our, our church is to be in, on, here on the Central Coast. So i got a little slide, how we see ourselves. So number one, uh, we see ourselves as a church community on the Central Coast being remade into disciples of Jesus or followers of Jesus or another word that you can use as an apprentice of Jesus, someone that's learning, growing, the sum total of their life is to become like Jesus. Um, known by our love for God, love for others, and devotion to gospel renewal in our workplaces, neighborhoods, and culture. This is important for you to know. Like Our aim as a church is not to be known as being a megachurch, as having the church with the incredible fog machine, is not to be identified as a church with the celebrity preacher. That's not our aim. Our aim is not to be known as a church with young hipster people. Our aim is not to be known as a church that has really good music. That's not our aim. Our aim, ultimately, is that we be identified through our love for God, that when people talk about Calvary Slow, they're like, oh my goodness, those, those people love Jesus. They're really, really devoted to God, and they're devoted to each other, so that when somebody has a need within that church community, they're short on their rent, or they're unable to pay a you know, massive medical bill, or they have need for pain, whatever it is that's going on in their life, that church, from what I've heard, by way of the rumors, uh, they gather around each other, and they figure out ways to provide meals, to embody Jesus, to financially take care of them, to mow their lawn, to do all of these things because it seems like they really, really are committed and love one another. And then ultimately, gospel renewal. And we'll be talking about this over the next couple of weeks. What does it look like to actually embody or to participate in gospel renewal, which I would say gospel and renewal are, go hand in hand. Uh, wherever the gospel goes out and is received, renewal happens. People's lives are reshaped, reoriented, healed. Marriages are, 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 are put back onto a place of being mended. Um, hearts that were once arrogant, full of pride, full of self, become emptied of that, become humble and responsive to God. Uh, people that were broken and lowly and like a bruised reed or a smoking you know, candle, they come back to life again. They become vibrant again. They become full of uh, life and ability and whatnot. Again, people that are once in the throes of anxiety, they discover the peace of Jesus. People that are tormented by evil, demonic presences, they find themselves being reoriented around this healing God that brings about renewal in their life. So th this is kind of what we see. So we are a church community on the Central Coast being remade into disciples of Jesus, known by our love for God, love for others, and devotion to gospel renewal in our workplaces, neighborhoods, and cultures. And cultures. So next slide, I'm going to jump into this. Um, kind of summarize a little bit of how we see this happening. So we see that discipleship or a disciple ultimately is one that's going to orient their lives around these three priorities, if you want to think of it that way. Values, priorities, like this is what it means to really embody a disciple. So if you have ever asked yourself the question, what does it really mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus? So this is different, by the way, of being a church member. Being a church member means you just show up and you just, you just you, you observe, you, you watch. Um, being a disciple is radically different. In fact, I've made this argument over the years that um, even the word Christian is not the word that's used in the New Testament to describe people who follow Jesus. Um, the word disciple is actually the predominant word that gets used. The word Christian only gets used like three or four times. Now, again, I don't know how, if, you know, again, there's no a dis problem with usage of the word Christian, but I think especially in our culture, when words get overused, um, they lose their sense of definition. I would argue that being a follower of Jesus means that we are a disciple of Jesus, meaning that a disciple orients their lives around these three priorities. Number one is being with Jesus. And this looks like longing for, desiring, treasuring 
the presence of God. We'll actually talk more about that today. That's the whole subject matter for today. Next two weeks are going to be these next two ones, uh, which is becoming like Jesus, mean, meaning transformation. Our lives begin to be shaped. We're changed from the inside out. Um, our lives begin to take upon a very Jesus-y flavor, right? When people have interaction with us, they're like, dang, you're, you're kind of like Jesus. Like, that's the point. That's the point. That's what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. There's this uh, passage in the book of Acts where these disciples that were raw, rough, they're, you know, just a bunch of messed up people that we'll read about in just a moment. These guys were told that the uh, religious leaders, they see these guys, they're like, man, they're uneducated people, meaning they don't have their PhDs, they didn't go to college, uh, they, you know, were in public school. Um, and yet it goes on to say, these people that are totally uneducated, it's, it's, it's almost like they've been with Jesus. Like, that's the point, that there's something about the character, the quality of their life that has begun to take upon a shape of Jesus' shape. So, and finally, uh, we are in this process of orienting our lives around doing the stuff that Jesus did, doing the stuff that Jesus did. We like to think of it in this context of mission. We live with intentionality, the mission of the gospel, of gospel renewal. We live, we orient our lives in such a way where everything we do is focused, like laser focused upon what Jesus is up to in this world. And we want in on that. We want to be part of that. And I think it begins like right here, right now in these places like this where we begin to make this conscientious decision of, of I, I want to be a part of what God's up to in this world. So we'll talk more about that again in the weeks to come. So I want to jump right in now into the text that we're going to read. Mark chapter 3. We'll make some comments on this and we'll move on into the passage of John. But let's go ahead and jump in and begin to take a look at this. So Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, says this. And when Jesus went up on a mountain, he called to them those who, whom he had desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he called the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. I love this, that Jesus actually says, you guys are crazy, I'm going to give you a nickname, I'm going to call you sons of thunder. Um, tells you a little bit about how they acted, conducted themselves. Verse 18, uh, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who had betrayed him. So it's almost like Mark saying, and Judas, yeah, that guy, that guy, the one who betrayed him. So anyways, all of these 12 are what I want to focus on and think about right now. So um, I want to just make a couple different observations. One that is actually not on this list of this next slide that you'll take a look at is, first of all, the diversity of which Jesus had called together. Um, Jesus called together a very broad, vast diversity. Next slide. Um, we'll have the show you guys. Um, there's this broad diversity of which people, uh, people that Jesus brings together. Um, one of which we see, for example, this guy by the name of Simon the Zealot. The word zealot basically is another name for someone that had incredible amount of zeal for the house of God or the temple of God. Um, so this guy, Simon, probably in his day would have been basically viewed as like a like an, uh, hyper-nationalist. He has a deep, deep nationalistic streak inside of him that says everything, he'd be kind of like a modern-day Zionist, the Zionist movement. His whole sole aim is to get Israel back to its greatness that it once was under the lineage of David. Unfortunately, now it's filled with uh, crippling 
compromise and the religious leaders have given up their traction of devotion to God. They become unholy. There's all these alliances with, with Rome and the relationships are just compromised across the board. So a zealot, his number one aim was to basically bring about the purity of the Jewish people once again. So with that being said, in that same list, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to go through all of these, is another guy by the name of Matthew. Matthew, which we know as the tax collector. So again, if you know anything about the context, Matthew, the tax collector, gives us this little bit of an insight. So Matthew would have been a guy that was a complete sellout. He totally compromised. In other words, he received a paycheck from Rome, right, the enemy, and he was basically compromised. He was taxing his own family members, his own Jewish family kin, in order to make a profit. And so who's on Jesus' team? Uh, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Is Jesus absolutely crazy? No, Jesus is not absolutely crazy. What is Jesus doing? He's no, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's creating a team of people that are radically diverse, radically broken, radically dysfunctional, because his aim is to basically say, in my kingdom, the table to, whom, or to which I orient life around will be filled with very, very diverse, very dysfunctional, very opposite forms of people because this is the kingdom that I'm creating. So again, we should not be shocked at a community that's radically diverse. In other words, people who drive up maybe in a G-Wagon and people that ride their skateboard here in a church community should feel safe, no matter who they are, no matter how broken they are, people that have been following Jesus for 30 years, that have seminary degrees, should be able to sit with as much comfortability next to somebody that just smoked a whole heck of a lot of weed and is totally drunk because they just drank a lot that morning. That there should be this degree of like, you know what, we're all here, we're all pretty broken, somewhere they're broken, it's even more so on their sleeves than others, but we're all here because somewhere in the part of our heart is this deep desire to become like Jesus, to draw near to this king who reshapes, reorients our lives, who sets us free from our addictions, who sets us free from our habits, whether it be habit of pride, constantly taking selfies and promoting yourself on social media, or the habit of just drinking too much. That Jesus heals people and brings us, no matter where we're at, no matter what type of background we've come from, into the same family to say, I'm going to remake you into a brand new family. So this is what we see that Jesus is doing. So that's number one observation, kind of a, maybe a, uh, the preface of the other four. So I'll go through these real quick. Number two, which is actually number one on here, that Jesus called to those whomever he wanted. So Jesus is basically setting an agenda. He calls all these people. Secondly, is that we see that uh, they were called ultimately to be with him. That's just a direct quote. Why does Jesus call them? To be with him. We should pause and think about that. Because a lot of us, I think, again, I've been doing church life for a really, really long time. I've had... I don't know, hundreds, if not thousands of conversations with people. And one consistent common theme that I oftentimes see sort of interwoven in the lives of a lot of people is what I would describe as sort of a, of a bad God narrative. And what I mean by that, this bad God narrative, is they have this idea that God is, is, is mildly disgusted with them. Or if not, just overtly angry with them. And he just puts up with you. Um, and... This, this God narrative actually creates a community of people that run from God rather than run to him. That when God's presence shows up, they just sit in the back. And they sit as far outside as they can because of the cynicism of their heart, the hardness of the heart, the guilt or the shame of their own heart. Uh, keeps them on the outside. And what the heart of the gospel is, is to bring people from the outside in. 
That's the heart of the gospel, to bring people into the very center of things. So Jesus, again, he says, I called them so that they would be with me. And then the third thing is that they would, over time, ultimately become like him. Because we see that in the story, that Jesus brings together these people. Um, again, you have this transformation of the sons of thunder into John, who writes the amazing New Testament books. Or Peter. These guys are being radically transformed and radically shaped. That's what it means. We come to Jesus as we are, but we have a God that doesn't leave us as we are. He begins to shape us and change us and transform us. And then finally, we see that they would ultimately do what he, D-I dot D, right? Um, again, I, I get it. It's a typo. It's my fault. I own it. So don't judge me and just right here, focus on me. So don't focus on me. Focus on Jesus, but focus on Jesus through me. So there you go. You get the idea. Um, the point that I would make is this, is that that we would ultimately do what Jesus did. And that's not a website, by the way. Don't, I, it's not working. I typed in like D-I dot That's not a website. But um, Jesus is shaping us so that we would eventually do what he did. And that's what we see here in the passage. Again, take a look at this in verse 14. And he appointed 12 also whom were disciples or apostles so that he might, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And then ultimately, verse 15, that they might have authority over demons to cast demons out. So, What's this a reference to? This is a reference to them, at some point, doing the stuff that Jesus did. Preaching and casting out demons. In other words, helping people to be set free from these unseen forces that have held them bound. So who are the ones that are invited to do that? Disciples of Jesus. Who are the disciples of Jesus? Well, that's what we're saying. That's, that's you. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's us as a community. This is who we want to be. Here on the Central Coast, we see that God is doing something, and we want to step into that. So next, I want to jump in, and I want to begin to sort of ask this question. Because if the aim of Jesus be, begins with, it starts all here with Jesus saying, I want you to be with me. In other words, presence. I want you to enter into my presence. This is a good point to kind of uh, draw some distinctions here. Because a lot of times, some might think, well, isn't Jesus' presence always with us? And the answer to that is unequivocally, of course it is, always. You never flee from the presence of God. You are always, 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 always in God's presence. But that's distinct from what I would describe as, a, as an experiential awareness of his presence or a tangible awareness of his presence, where we, we all have been in moments, I'm sure, in occasions in our life where we are in the presence of, of God, where we might not even be aware of it, right? That's always there. But then there's sometimes occasions where Something happens, something unique takes place, and then you're aware of, of God's presence. And again, for some, that might be walking into a church, might be walking into a Bible study, might be walking into a worship session, might be listening to a, you know, whatever it is. I mean, I, there's been occasions where you are just deeply aware of God's presence. You know that God is there. That's what, that's what we would describe as the tangible presence of God. And what I'm suggesting to you is I think Jesus is inviting us to live our lives within this awareness, continual awareness of God's presence. What one author in, I think, the 1500s, 1600s described, Brother Lawrence, if you're familiar with him by name, uh, this phrase called the practice of the presence of God, which that was the whole idea, to live within this continual awareness that God is always, always present. What does it look like to live in an awareness of this, to embrace that, to let that shape me and how I think and how I respond and how I react to people all around me. So that's it. What I want to jump now into is the question of if this is what we are called into is to live within the presence of God, 
to be aware of the presence of God. How do we do that? Because I just want to point out the obvious. Jesus is not physically here, right? This is one of those things where sometimes it takes people that are maybe not familiar with Christian language or Christian terminology to wake us up. Because have you been around people that maybe, for example, are not Christians and we use Christian terminology like, yeah, I was just having my quiet time this morning. And they're like, your quiet what? Like meditation? Like what, what are you talking about? And the point that I would make is this, is that sometimes it's, it's good to just realize like well, the language that I use is totally foreign to this other audience. And the same goes when we talk about the presence of God. Because we're like, oh, the Lord's presence is so good. People are like maybe that aren't Christians are like, what are, what are you talking about? We're, I see nothing. God is not here. I don't see Jesus. What are you talking about? And this is where it's helpful for us to step back and just, number one, realize the Christian life is it's filled with mystery and oddness. And it's okay. Just em- embrace the oddness of that, and, and then life will be a little bit better for you. But the point that I would make is this, is that Jesus begins to unpack for us a little bit more of detail as to how God makes his presence known to us. And that's where I want you to turn now to the book of uh, John, chapter 14. And I'll read a couple passages here, and then we'll wrap this up. John chapter 14, Jesus would say this, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. So it's an important phrase. If you want to underline that in your Bible, you can. But the phrase to be with you forever. We're talking about presence. That whoever it is that Jesus is talking about here right now, he describes him as another helper uh, he describes it as one that comes as a result of him asking the Father. And then Jesus says, not only that, but he will be with you, not for six months, not for a trial period, not till you get to the next level, but always and forever. So whoever this is, Jesus will unpack a little bit further. This is really important for you to understand these little details about whoever this is. Verse 17, he says, even the spirit of truth. He says, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So what Jesus is saying is that what in whom he is sending is this, this spirit. Uh, what we would describe, if you are a New Testament follower of Jesus, which hopefully all of us are, but the point of the matter is, is this framework that we would describe as the uh, Trinitarian nature of God, the triunity of God. So if you ever have thought about God in, as a complex unity, meaning... He is Father, He's Son, and He's Spirit. That's what we would describe as this complex unity of God or the triunity of God or the trinity of God. That's what we mean by that. What Jesus is saying is that the Spirit of God will come and live with you and will always be with you. He is a Spirit of truth. So again, Jesus is Jewish, so he was no doubt in, in his communicating of this deeply aware of the framework or the concept of who the Spirit of God is from the opening sequence of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God brooded or hovered over the face of the deep and then created this habitable space on planet earth. And then later on, when God creates human beings, it says that God actually breathed into the nostrils of Adam, and Adam became a living being. Um, The word breathe is the Hebrew word. uh, I'm going to try to say it without spitting a lot, but ruach, ruach. How about you all say that? Put your hand in front of your mouth and say it. Ruach. If you did not, if you, most of you guys did not do that. Come on. You're looking at me like you're too cool for school. Ruach. Say it. Do it. Ruach. You should have felt on your hand breath. That's the point. 
Ruach. It's the idea of breath coming out and doing something, moving something, animating something. This is exactly what the breath of God is. That word ruach is also the same word that's used for spirit. In other words, the breath of God, the spirit of God, does and accomplishes something. It animates things that were once dead. It brings life into those areas that were once full of dryness and deadness. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Now listen to this. This is where it gets absolutely mind-blowing. Jesus says, this spirit of God was once with you, but now he will be in you. Again, listen, you know him, he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Jesus said earlier, and he will never leave you, ever. He will be with you forever. This is God's presence come to live within us. Guys, do you understand the brevity of this? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have taken up residence Inside of us, there's no such thing as a common, mundane human being that follows Jesus. Every human being made in the image of God, especially those that have committed their lives and oriented themselves to the way of Jesus, inside of you lives the living God. It's mind-blowing. And this is what we're invited into, to live into, to understand, to be aware of this, to live with the awareness of God's abiding presence inside of us. Take a look at verse 18. He goes on to say, he says, and I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. Again, his presence. In a little while, the world will not see me no more, but you will see me because I live in you also. And in that day, you will know, uh, you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I in you. Verse 20 is kind of a, a cryptic phrase. Again, listen to it again. It says, in that day, you will know that I am in you or that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. I don't even know how you di- diagram that. If you were a good drawer or artist or something, how would you, I don't even know how you draw that. But this image of verse 20, Jesus says, I'm in the Father. So here's Father, Jesus inside the Father. He says, you are in me. You're in Jesus, who's inside the Father. And then he goes on to say in verse 20, and I am in you. Wait, what? I thought I was in Jesus, or we were in Jesus, but now Jesus is saying, I'm in you. I don't know how you diagram that. Again, this is like cryptic Jesus speaking Mysterious things that are absolutely mind-blowing and breathtakingly beautiful. But the whole point of the matter is, is that his presence is accessible for us to enter into as a church. First and foremost, this is who we want to be. We want to be a community of people that, that host, that recognize, that are illuminated, that are amazed, that are shocked and in awe of the very presence of God. Um, he goes on to say, in verse 21, and whoever has my commandments keeps them, and he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In other words, I will make my presence known to him. To whom? To those who obey me. There's a reciprocal relationship. God shows himself, which means uh, by grace, the Bible says very clearly, we are saved. In other words, there's nothing that we do to earn God's favor. But there's a relationship. For this relationship to grow where it's intended, to become deep in the ways that God intends for it to become deep, for us to be all that God intends for us to be, requires this response on our behalf that's described as obedience. When God calls us, we obey. And that's what we're going to talk about just the next couple weeks to come is we ask the question, what does it really look like? So how do we really know that this God that's invisible 
is something of which we are engaging in his presence. And that's, that's where that answer is going to become a little bit more clear over the next few weeks because as we walk in a relationship with him and as we live in obedience to him, uh, there will be some elements that will begin to grow within our lives, meaning we will want to become more like him. We will want to be transformed and changed. And that process of being transformed and changed involves truth, information, wisdom from the outside of us. It's not inside of us. Uh, it's not that we tap into our inner person and begin to determine how do, how do we really truly flourish. We tap into the word of God. We tap, tap into the wisdom that comes from uh, uh, men and women that are gifted by God to teach and communicate the scriptures and open them up to us so that we can then come to life. It also comes by way of community because we can claim, like, I love God, but people, they are absolutely annoying to me. And so I just run from people. Um, again, I, I, I get the whole introvert thing. That, that's me. Um, when it's my day off, I don't even answer my phone. I really don't even really look at it. And, um, and the fact of the matter is, is as much as I, I love you all, um, people are exhausting. Like, like, and I love what I do. I love my job. Don't, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love it. But I love also just my downtime of not having to be in the lives of other people. But the point that I would make is this, is that part of what it means to actually embody, to live into the life of Jesus, is to recognize that people, that's where love begins to come into place. In other words, I cannot become a person that loves in isolation. You understand that? And if we claim to be part of a community, and yet we are on the outside of the door and claiming, I love this place, but there has never been any actual entry into the lives of other people, there's, there's some incongruity and inconsistency there. Now, I want to say this as well, because for some, they come into the church family, the church community, deeply broken because they've had broken experiences and relationships with other people. So they need time to heal. And I'm going to say, so glad you're here. You need space. There's no pressure whatsoever to do anything, to rise up. We truly believe that as the Holy Spirit begins to take place and residency in our heart, we respond by faith and obedience and worship, then what will end up happening is we will become, over time, like Jesus. That's next week's message. But the point that I would make is this, is that at some point, that has to happen for us to begin to take the shape of, of Jesus. And that's what it looks like. So as we go on and we get, begin to think about this, I want to just finish with this thought and then we'll close with some thoughts here. That the way of Jesus ultimately comes to us through the Holy Spirit. The way that Jesus comes to us. The way that Jesus makes himself known to us right now. So if you walk out of here and you're like, I had an encounter with Jesus. The way that happened is because the Holy Spirit came to you. That's exactly what John uh, 14 is telling us. But here's the thing. The way that we respond to God is through obedience and worship is saying, yes, Lord, I'll step into that. Yes, Lord, I'll enter into that heart obedience. It's an obedience, but it's a heart obedience, and I want to do that. Yes, Lord, I want to do what you've called me to do, because that comes out of this interaction of relationship with God, and this is what we're talking about. This is the type of church that we want to be. We want to be a community of people that have been fine-tuned over training, over a lifelong process of following Jesus, that, that listen to the, the voice of the Spirit, that we're the type of people that are pressing into the heart of God and saying, God, what are you up to? Where are those places of suffering and hurting and pain that we can then enter into? Again, I realize that that's hard to come by in today's culture, especially one that is flourishing, if you want to think of it that way, in the realm of information. There's no shortage of information. That's part of the problem, is that we live in a culture that's constantly throwing information in our face, so much so that we really don't even know what to do with it. And at some point, our, our head just kind of hits tilt. 
Like, we, we just can't even function anymore, and that turns us into cynics, that turns us into skeptics, that turns us into complainers, that turns us into people that at some point are just simply numb and bored. And the question is, where's God in the midst of all of that? And I would suggest it's right there. But it takes the heart that just says, Lord, show me yourself. Show me where the suffering's at. Help me to hear your voice. Help me to walk in light of this relationship that you want to have with me. We want to be this type of people as a church community. Because I would suggest it all begins right here. Because as this begins to take shape in our lives, then we will by nature, what Jesus would describe is as you abide in the vine, you'll begin to bear much fruit. Jesus would say, apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, one of the things that you notice about uh, from an agricultural perspective, um, you never see an apple like squeezing out apples, right? Like somehow like forcing, ugh, green apple come out. You just see a vine or an apple tree just naturally do what apple trees do. It's create apples, right? And that's what followers of Jesus do as we are abiding in the vine, as we're living our lives in such a way that it says, Lord, I want to live in relationship to you. I want to know your heart. And this takes practice. There's some practical steps that you can do every morning is cultivate habits in the morning that turn your heart towards God. I mean, Honestly, one of the most simplest ones I could even throw out is the first thing in the morning, do not, under any circumstance, grab for your phone. Like, just don't. Because what I find is, again, this is my personal experience, that in grabbing that phone, the very first thing in the morning, I'm actually wiring my brain because I'm, I'm going to read something that will either set my heart in anxiety. I'm going to read something that's going to make me mad. I'm going to read something that gets me frustrated. I'm going to read something that just, it just does something to my heart. And the rest of my morning is just kind of throw up. And I would suggest that as we wake up in the morning, like avoid those things that oftentimes will lead us down that path. And instead, maybe the first thing in the morning, just, just wire your heart. Get into the practice, into the rhythm of just saying, Jesus, good morning. Thank you for your love. And lead me today. I want to hear your voice. I want to know where you're leading me today. When you're sitting in line at Trader Joe's and you have a whole whopping 45 seconds to figure out what you're going to do with before the next two people in front of you are going to go through the line, rather than taking out your phone and being like, man, 45 seconds, what am I going to do? Um, rather than grabbing for your phone, just, just pause. Um, and just in that moment, just again, you can keep your eyes open. It's totally cool. In fact, I would, I would admonish you probably just keep your eyes open. If you can close your eyes, it looks weird. Um, but just keep your eyes open. And just in that moment, just like, like, Jesus, give me your eyes. You're here now. And I want my heart to be aware of what you're doing right now. Show me people, maybe around me right now, right next to me, that may be hurting or broken or in need of kindness or love or conversation or maybe, maybe needs their groceries bought for them. I just want to know, Lord, what are you doing in this moment? How do you want to speak to me? We want to be these types of people that cultivate this as our lifestyle. Um, and in closing, what I want to do is I just want to finish with a couple questions. Because, again, our aim is to live in this constant state of awareness, obedience, and worship towards God. And his abiding and empowering presence. So Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will do. He will guide you in the truth. He will always be with you. He will empower you. But again, many of us, we just live our lives not aware of this, not in tune with this. And it takes 
a lifestyle adjustment to say, I want to truly live embodying this. There's some questions to consider, think about. Um, will you have Jesus become center stage of your life? To take up the very central part of who you are and how you think and how you process. Um, this is what it means, I, th- I think, honestly, to really just follow Jesus. You see this kind of throughout the early church. And it's one of the things that made the early church so, like, incredible. Even though it was flawed and broken, had a lot of broken people. And Man, when we get to the book of Corinthians, you're going to realize that this church, on the one hand, was excelling in some really unique ways. At the same time, I, I think uh, one scholar described uh, Corinth as the least favorite church of Paul. I, I think he's probably correct. I think Paul, like, loved the Corinthian believers, but was also radically exhausted by them and their failure to live up to all that God intended for them. But... So he writes him a letter, several of them, and we're going to read those letters. But the point that I make is that what would it look like for us to really live into this practice of Jesus? We want you to be the very center of all that we are. As a church community, as a family, when we come to gatherings, as a church family on Sunday morning, who are the people that maybe you want me to sit next to? Who are the people that you maybe want me to pray for? Um, you, by the way, you don't need an invitation to pray for people. Let's be really honest. Like, uh, if, if you're waiting for someone to say, how, we want to ask you to pray, like, no, 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 the Holy Spirit's here. The Holy Spirit, like, loves to move in people's lives. Like, that, that's the invitation, the Holy Spirit. Follow the voice of God. And God will lead us. That's, we, we truly believe. Like, there's a democratizing of God's work across God's people. Like, the Holy Spirit, like, does, I'm not a middleman, by the way, guys. Like, I, yeah, I planted the church here. Yeah, you know, I might be the main dude that kind of teaches a lot of times. But I'm not a middleman. Like, don't look to me somehow as like, you know, what, what you know, Jesus will show himself to you. Begin to invite the Lord to speak to you and what that would look like. So I want to finish with some uh, just practical things to consider, to think about. Again, um, I want to finish with this uh, acronym of life. It's one of those phrases that oftentimes gets utilized in big mega churches, which we're not, that uses, gets used for kind of like their uh, fundraising campaign, which is what this is not. It's not a fundraising campaign at all. But what I just, there's some interesting things to consider, think about. The word life. So to give your life, what does it look like to give your life? Number one, your leadership, your leadership. Um, Each of you guys have unique leadership giftings that God's given you. And for us to be the church community that we see that God wants us to be in slow right now and even beyond the boundaries of slow, it involves a lot of people stepping in and saying, I have unique abilities and giftings. And this is one of the things I love about being able to do things like what we've done with 40 Prado. And by the way, I'm looking for people that would be interested in maybe helping to kind of be a liaison to help uh, be a point of connection between this church and 40 Prado so that we can begin to tap into and find out what are the other areas that we can come and help and serve and you know, what are the things that you guys need purchased or bought or sleeping bags you need bought or whatever. Like someone that can like even use giftings along those lines. Um, and there's lots of broad ways to be able to do that. Number one, your leadership. Number two, your influence. Each one of us have a sphere of influence. And you realize that as you embody the life of Jesus and as you begin to engage in the presence of Jesus, um, that influence that God gives you is something which you can leverage and use as a means for the glory of God. And this, this is one of the most beautiful things about a church that has, especially in the culture where we're at right now, each of you guys have this sphere of influence to begin to, to sow the life of Jesus all around you. Thirdly, finances. In order for us to do what we do, we had uh, Aaron and Sarah Nesper a couple weeks ago share with you guys just, just how our church works. Again, we, we don't have a trust fund. 
we don't have like one or two like filthy rich people, we wish we did, but that were like supporting everything or underwriting like, you guys need a million bucks? No, cool, here we go. We don't have that, but what we do have is a lot of faithful people that are like, hey, I got 25 bucks this month and I'll, I'll give that or 15 bucks here, I'll give that. And again, we have a lot of that. It, it allows us to be able to do what we do. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever discovered this, but San Luis is not cheap. It is not cheap. Like for us to be a church here on the Central Coast and begin to bleed over into other places of this world, it takes an incredible amount of people coming together to say, I will play my part. Some of us, we're just tipping God. We're just giving a couple bucks here, we're just, and we're not really engaging. And again, we say this all the time. There's a, if this is not your church, if you're just kind of checking things out, if you're just kind of floating around, it's totally fine. There's no obligation ever, no way ever should there ever be guilt or compulsion or people feel shamed into guilt of giving, ever. That should, that's not the heart of God. But when we begin to understand like what God is up to in this world and how we can play a part, um, yes, part of being a disciple of Jesus is learning to live with radical Jesus generosity. That's what we see happen. And then finally, we see this idea of expertise. Each one of us have unique areas of expertise, and each one of us have a unique place of being able to use that expertise. I, there's a gal named Molly. Molly, I think you're here somewhere. You don't have to say hi, but I don't want to embarrass you. But a couple of weeks ago, she was like, hey, I do photography. I'd love to help out. So I'm like, cool. Let's have you come and help out. So she did some amazing photos, and I love that. It's just like, it's like one example of like many, many, many areas throughout our church like, uh, of God mobilizing people, of using whatever gifts they are, whether it be you know, graphic design to photography to like techie stuff to knowing how to reboot a computer to like turning a dial to like pressing a button on a computer to you know, helping children be led into the way of Jesus to today we just started a brand new middle school group, which we're super excited about. And again, it takes people saying, I will be there. I will show up. I will be present. I will give of my time, my energy, because training the next generation of people for the gospel, for the purpose of Jesus actually matters, and I want in. So for some of us, I don't know where you're at and how you even think about this. For some of us, we're just content to either sit on the outside of the party and not ever really jump in. Some of us right now, our lives are absolutely stacked and packed and maxed out. I get it. It's kind of the story of many of us on the Central Coast. And for some of us, maybe we need to like even consider that and maybe to some degree even repent from some of those areas of busyness and turn from that and somehow create margin in our lives so that Jesus. So some of us might think, well, Brian, it sounds like you're, you're asking us to completely reorient our lives around Jesus. <laughs> and if you assume that, I'm glad you did because that's exactly correct. That's exactly what it means to be a follower of Jesus, guys. There's, there's no apology for that. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is to give ourselves entirely to the one who gave himself entirely to us. Because that, what we're asking all of us to consider is to embody the very thing that God did with us. We have a God that made himself manifest in our lives. That is the story that we're about to enter into over Christmas, which is unbelievable. I can't believe we're already like coming to the end of 2019. It's ridiculous. But the point of the matter is, is that that's the story that we celebrate, is that God makes his presence tangible, physical, known. He doesn't step away from the chaos. We call planet Earth. He steps into the chaos. We call planet Earth and says, I'm going to redeem it, bring renewal of the good news, the announcement that a new king has arrived and that king casts out demons, that king brings in hope. So I don't know where you're at. My hope would be that you would hear this and say, I want in. I want in with what God's doing. I want to jump in. I want all that God has. That's my hope. But again, it takes an act of the Holy Spirit to really synchronize our hearts to that. So 
I'm going to finish. I'm done. And as we go to the table, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, we're reminded that all of us, no matter who we are, no matter how broke we are, no matter how messed up we are, no matter how together you may think that you are, right, um, we're all invited to this table to find and discover the presence of God that gives renewal. Guys, that's my heart, man. That's my longing. I'm longing more and more and more for God to bring renewal to my life, to our church, to our community, to our churches. I'm confident it'll happen. I want in. I want a part.